May Somali is a 2014 Sir John Monash scholar. May is a lawyer, an investor, a coach, a mentor, an entrepreneur. She's also been repeatedly recognised for her leadership quality. May, it's an absolute pleasure having you join us on The Scholars today. Thanks so much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. May, did I leave anything out? That's uh, that's quite a, a hit list of achievements. <laughs> um, let, let's 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 maybe go through your uh, degrees. Let's just get them out um, on the table. What um, what have you got? Well, I should say, Justin, I first and foremost, very human. <laughs> I think that sometimes can get can get lost. Um, but no, I you know I've been so fortunate to have the opportunity to really um, geek it up, if I can call it that, over the last yeah. uh, couple of decades. And so in terms of kind of my formal qualifications, I started off getting a, a Bachelor of Economic and Social Sciences actually at Sydney University and really okay. doubling down on you know government and international relations, was super fascinated by how systems worked and uh, kind of paired that with uh, the Bachelor of Laws as well at Sydney University. Um, mm-hmm. And was kind of practicing law for the first few years after I graduated. Um, I then had the opportunity to come over to the United States and do my master's in public policy. Um, and I got that from the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, and that was made possible by the amazing John Monash Foundation. So that that's kind of the, the formal qualifications. I like to call myself a student of life though. So um, I, I find any opportunity to delve in, to, 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 learn, to learn and study and experience and grow. So did you, um, did you do your undergrad degree straight out of high school? I did, yeah. I went straight in. Um, I was still 17. I think in Australia you can feel mm. that when you're not let yep. in anywhere. <laughs> but yep. my birthday was uh, March 14th, so I had a good month and a half of uh, university where I was still a minor and um, mm, very much. I hope then, you stayed but... away from those bars. <laughs> Look, I um, I definitely was probably more excited about this wild world of university that we'd heard all about. But it was was actually at Sydney University for a good six years. Did my honors degree there as well, and the, the double degree. Spent six months in New York City on exchange, but very much kind of was um, engulfed in the world of Sydney University. So when you were in high school in year 12, did you have any idea what you wanted to do with your life? Uh, <laughs> look, I, uh, it's, a, it's a big question, isn't it? I actually have really clear recollection of being probably around, I want to say 11, 12, uh, around grade eight level. And yeah. I had this really strong sense that I wanted to, you know, if you can say kind of quote, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? I really wanted to be someone that could advocate on behalf of those who didn't have a voice. And okay. I, I think I got this sense from a couple of public speaking competitions that we had at school where mm-hmm. you could essentially talk about anything. And I happened to do speeches on, uh, you know, quality of men and women or, you know, uh, justice, racial justice, uh, human rights, and really loved being able to express what I thought was super important, which is concepts around social justice. And um, I remember going for a walk with my dad um, around the block one day and he said to me kind of, you know, with this, the the speaking that you love doing and these movies that you love watching about human rights, um, 
you could you could potentially do this for your career and and that's when i learned that you could be a lawyer you could be a yeah. human rights lawyer and mm. i don't think i ever really shook that off now like any uh teenager i went through phases of thinking i wanted to be a genetic engineer an olympian um a, a, a singer um and, and, and I, mind you justin i have a terrible voice i don't know where yeah. i got that. I, think I don't think it going, matters i don't think it really matters. <laughs> I, think it matters. I think i was just uh really whipped by the spice girls at that stage so i thought i wanted to I be love one the of spice them, but girls. <laughs> they're great aren't they but um no I, I i did have this sense in um early on and i think in grade 12 i was super focused on doing what i could to really do justice to this vision and and ensure that i could um, have an education that allowed me to use my voice in a way that was of uh, service yeah, to okay. others. Yeah. So I'm so I'm presuming you're a pretty good student. You got a good mark, and then you thought, okay, well, I mean, let's let's do it. I think looking back, if I could actually uh, do kind of grade twelve and the transition to university again, I I would perhaps consider taking time off. And I think when you're in the the kind of bubble of high school and you know, there's a lot of pressure about going to university and getting in and, and grades. And I think you, yes. you can get a bit caught up in that. Um, I think looking looking back, zooming out, um, that there is a much bigger world out there. And so whilst I'm super grateful that I was dedicated, I had the resources, the support around me to really apply myself. I, I, I don't think it's the be all and end all. And I think that actually having balance and focusing on kind of your physical and mental and emotional health, as well as your intellectual kind of uh, achievement is really important. It's interesting you say that because there is so much pressure on the school leavers these days, whether they're 17 or 18, but those that have just finished year 12, HSC exams have, um, have just concluded. Everyone's now waiting for the results. And mm. I suppose it, it's inevitable that there's pressure on everyone to, you know, to, to make a decision quickly and to, you know, get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 17, 18 year olds, being expected to know what they want to do with the rest of their lives it's a huge uh pressure that we you know as a system we're putting on that age group and i think one of the biggest gifts we can give our young people is the insight that it's one of many decisions you're going to be making throughout your life and that your career is a constantly evolving um, beast <laughs> or piece mm. of art, if I can call yeah. it that. And it's a, it's, a, it's a canvas you keep throwing paint at. And like the more you do that, the, the more beautiful it gets, but you don't know what it's going to look like. And um, you know, we're super lucky, right? We're in a generation where many of us have many careers. And, you know, I laugh because I constantly think about what I, what I want to be when I keep growing <laughs> up. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not as much vertically these days, but you know, still. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I think I stopped growing at 11. <laughs> so it's been, um, you know, just a, a constant journey of thinking, you know, how, how, how can I continue to apply myself? And how do I take what I'm learning and put it into practice? There's no one job, career, role, title. And that's yes. very liberating as a realization. And it's one of the, the things that draws me to working with young people, particularly high school age students, is um you know, who am I to, to tell them what to do? But if I can just share my experiences, what I've learned about the the lack of importance of putting a lot of pressure on just one title or one achievement or one score you're getting, but thinking more holistically about your life, um, that that's something that I can hope to share and that I think has been really important and instructive for my own development and growth over the years. 
You mentioned before some of the advice given by your dad as you were growing up. Am I right in saying you're of Persian descent? That's correct, yeah. Persian yeah, so originally. What, so so what, what what was that like growing up um, living in Sydney from, you know, with a, with, a, with a Persian background? I appreciate the question, Justin, actually. So my mother and father were both born in Iran and emigrated to the U.S. Um, prior to the Iranian Revolution in 1979. So they had kind of an American upbringing, did their mm -hmm. studies here and decided to move to the Australia. Uh, and I'm the first of three children. So my brother, sister and I were all born in Sydney, um, yep. consider it home. And so I had this uh, beautiful fusion of Persian culture and Australian kind of uh, upbringing, if I can call it that. But yes. really at the time, um, also remember feeling <laughs> very confused about <laughs> who I am. Um, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, right? But the second generation um, immigrant uh, mentality, which is that you, you realize you're different. You also realize you are the same and you are Australian. I, I actually have vivid memory of um, my first day. I think it's one of my earliest memories. In fact, my first day of preschool, yes. I was four. Um, I remember being dropped off um, and I couldn't speak a word of English despite growing up in Sydney and being born bred. Um, my parents knew that the moment we went to school, we would <laughs> become extremely fluent at English. Yeah, um, and so yeah. they wanted us to make sure that we could learn and, and read and write Farsi, which I'm so grateful for now. And so kind of, I remember not being able to communicate and defend myself in the playground. Um, among mm. some um, rougher children. And so one of the first English sentences I learnt was actually my mother telling me how to go and tell the teacher that I'd gotten hurt <laughs> <laughs> in the playground. What did, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. you know, thinking mm. back, you know, that there's those moments. But, of course, um, I, I really appreciate being able to uh, have had this extra perspective of being Persian, but also um, really, really understanding how grateful we were as a family to have Australia to call home. And, and I say this um, not tokenistically, but quite literally in that part of being Persian, and whilst I've never visited Iran, um, you know, my, my family actually left Iran prior to the revolution because we are uh, Baha'is um, mm. in terms of our, you know, religious persuasion. And so Baha'is in Iran have been faced with uh, decades of persecution under the hands of the Islamic kind of regime. And what has been so um, embedded, I think, in my heart and mind growing up is that had I been born in Iran um, as a young woman, as a Baha'i, I wouldn't have been able to access education and especially higher education. And so yes. with that came this real recognition and social responsibility to make the most of the opportunities I've been given as an Aussie kid in Australia yeah. and really kind of wanting to apply myself, um, trying to achieve excellence in everything that I did and, and really just loved school, loved my teachers, loved my school friends and, and made the most of it. And I think it was very subconscious at the time, but yeah. I even remember applying for the Monash scholarship and that being really top of mind and top of heart in terms of why I want to make the most of so, so many of the educational opportunities that were um, given to me. So, so it's fair to say that's been a, an underlying driving force behind your 
thirst for knowledge and continued education and being able to help people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a social responsibility. And I think the more I grew, the more I learned, the more I experienced new things, I've also come to realize the importance of also challenging my own perspective on things and stereotypes and assumptions that I've been making. And so the thirst has gotten um, larger, but for, for different reasons, I think, as I've um, gotten into my 20s and now my 30s. So you're joining us today from San Francisco. What's it been like for you living and working in the US, both uh, during uh, a global pandemic, uh, but also, interestingly, um, a US election, which you could only describe as, you know, pretty crazy. Yeah, look, Justin, it's been quite a year. (laughs) Um, It has. I think I remember kind of March 2020 ending and thinking kind of that March has been the longest year that I've lived. (laughs) Um, Everything happened that month, didn't it? And I, you know, I consider myself, again, really lucky to have had the opportunity to not only do studies abroad um, over at the Kennedy School, but then spend a good, it's been about five years now that I've had the opportunity to live and work in San Francisco. You know, Mm. it's so hard to to stereotype or generalize an entire country. I wouldn't attempt to do that. (laughs) But I think for me, what's been really uh, important about my experience in the United States has been working in a different culture that whilst it's Western it's English speaking in so many ways culturally can feel so different and particularly the West coast of the U S California, a place I feel real affinity to. And I think part of it is the fact that it reminds me of Australia, the the emphasis on the outdoors, the great weather, um, the, the relatively laid back culture compared to the East coast of the U S but at the same time, the parts that really um, I guess, challenged me and uh, attracted me which were quite different to some of what I'd experienced in my you know, 20s in Australia is this passion for entrepreneurship for trying new things for uh, experimenting for failing for picking yourself back up for wearing number of hats and not letting one role define you um, that was really uh, different from what I'd experienced uh, as a you know lawyer in my 20s and and I think even after graduate school, it's been this constant journey of learning and unlearning. Um, Now, what's been so interesting about being in, I think, the United States in 2020 is on top of the pandemic, we've had um, real important movements and uprisings around, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, as well as the election. And so it's been a triple whammy of a year in many ways. Mm. But I think Mm. it's also been, for that very reason, an opportunity to kind of pause, reflect and practice gratitude. And for me, the things that I've been most grateful for is actually being in a city that took COVID quite seriously right from the start. San Francisco was one of the first cities that went into lockdown, was an example for the rest of the nation. And whilst the rest of the nation has not had um, the most <laughs> um, inspiring response, if I can say that diplomatically, yes, I think to COVID. So. That, that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been um, it's been really interesting for me as an Australian to see the different states' responses, and I think one of the biggest differences we have between the US and Australia is the 
the power of the, the states here in the US is is phenomenal and they're almost operating as their own countries. And so kind of the way that California operates San Francisco is so much more, um, I think, important to how I experience it, COVID, um, life in lockdown than, you know, US policy more broadly. And so that's been something that's made me really grateful to actually be in California more than anywhere else. Now, in terms of the election itself, um, it, it was certainly something that I could feel in the energy in the air. Um, there was a real anxiety in the air and a real uncertainty. And, and I think we are constantly reminded um, by the importance of civic participation and responsibility in a country where voting is not compulsory. Again, that's a very different dynamic in terms of the the conversations that happen and the emphasis on just getting out to vote versus yeah. Australia where we maybe perhaps I take for granted or took for granted that we did have compulsory, we do have compulsory voting. And so it's a very different conversation that's often happening around election time. But um, long story short, it's been a, a quite a year and one that I think for many of us defines how we think about wanting to show up for this next chapter, given that it doesn't look like we're going to go back to what, how things were, but we're really entering this new normal. So is, is uh, where you are now in San Francisco, are you still locked down or is it, uh, are you free to sort of move around, go to work, go to the office, uh, restaurants, that sort of thing? Yeah, so we, we've it's ebbed and flowed. We are currently in what they call the purple phase, which is um, in lockdown with the ability to leave home. I, I get out and do my daily jogs, um, get out into the parks as much as possible, but very much kind of mandatory masks. Um, offices are, for the most part, closed and have been since March. Uh, you know, I, I know very few people that have gotten on a plane since March, and restaurants are now kind of gone back to being closed and only open out, outside. So mm -hmm. it is, um, okay. and curf actually curfews were mandated early this week as well. So after 10 p.m., no socializing with anyone outside your home. I do suspect it's going to be like this for, for the next months until the vaccine's out. But I think for the most part, um, Californians and I, I should say San Franciscans more specifically have really adapted because unlike some of the other cities around the U.S., we never really reopened. So this is okay. really just, yeah. just been what 2020 is like. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I'm really keen to know specifically what, um, what you're doing right now for a job. What... Um, where where are you and uh, and and what are you um what are you doing? Yeah, so for for my uh, I guess work at the moment, um, it's interesting because it's the first time in my life where I'm not attached to any one organization, and okay. really um doing what I've always dreamt of, which is to have a portfolio career and a way of exercising my passions, wearing a number of different hats. So first and foremost, how I spend most of my time these days is as a professional coach. I have mm -hmm. the real honor of working with um, about a dozen or so executives. So it's everything from startup CEOs to uh, vice presidents uh, in professional service firms, people going through career transitions, both men and women um, across the US, New Zealand and Australia, um, and really working with them to be able to achieve 
what it is that's most important to them in their lives and in their careers and in their leadership and to to be able to practice joy and fulfillment and think about realizing their full potential so that's something that i do in terms of one-on-one coaching now i have also the pleasure of being able to work with different groups uh, facilitating um doing workshops and webinars uh for teams for for groups of women for example and collaborating with different organizations on themes related to leadership and resilience to well-being um to startups and entrepreneurship impact investing really a, a wide range of topics but things that are really important to me and being part of my own personal and professional experiences and how I want to show up in the world which is really to bring more humanity into our lives into our organizations and into the sectors that we're operating in um and doing that more and more at the individual level but having come from the system level originally as a lawyer and then kind of studying public policy working in venture capital and with entrepreneurs more closely as an investor um and then I actually spent the last 2 years Justin with an organization called High Resolves as the CEO of their ventures group where I had the opportunity to lead a team of amazing humans who were creating digital products that could help expand our reach in the civics and citizenship education space um mm-hmm. digital digital products building them um so that they could empower teachers and being able to work in product as an entrepreneur in a non-profit but applying business thinking startup practices was really humbling and uh, a real kind of lived experience of trying to bridge the world between startups and non-profits and so that's so- something that i actually just wrapped up <laughs> uh last month okay yep. so i'm entering kind of this month um working more closely with organizations um as uh an individual consultant and contributor and then collaborating with organizations as they come so really really excited about a number of projects that um I'm going to be uh, collaborating with organizations over the coming months and r- trying to stay really open minded um and create space for curiosity as opportunities I arise it. I love it Yeah. Um I think what's actually become more important to me is being able to say no uh and creating space to say yes at the right time to the right thing um and that's actually much easier said than done. I bet so is it is it liberating having that freedom of of no one full-time job that you can essentially pick and choose as uh, a very highly sought after consultant that you can really chase the work that you really want to do? it is and you know i i don't um purport that it will be permanent necessarily right now what feels very right um yeah. it's it feels authentic and it actually just allows me to i think be curious <laughs> i there are so many things i love and being able to work with individuals one on one work with leadership teams collaborate um run workshops but then also work as a venture partner with startups who are getting off the ground who are looking to raise money um i i'm so grateful that you know the Harvard Kennedy School I'm able to engage with the Center for Public Leadership and some of my um favorite professors as a guest lecturer and so i i really look at different ways of engaging and modes of engaging but really the the thing that's constant amongst all of this is for me i i i'm trying to really channel my energy and time into investing in people and ideas that can really change the world 
and doing that in a number mm. of ways and whatever feels right at the time. And ultimately, if I can be a, a vessel to help empower others to live their best lives or to bring their idea to life um, or to be the best leader that they can be, that to me is, is success. Um, and so it, can, it, it evolves. And what's beautiful about, I think, the current circumstances, um, I do really treasure the opportunity to come back and forth between Australia and California. And given so much is online these days, being able to create a career that um, is nimble, adaptive, um, you know, has space for different projects and opportunities as they come up just feels natural, given mm. we're, we're in the world where we're not going into the office nine to five every day. And, you know, we're not constrained by geography. So we'll see where this takes us. But uh, super excited to be on the journey. So when you're, if you if you put your personal coach hat on for a moment, when mm-hmm. you're in a session one-on-one with, say, a very powerful CEO uh, mm-hmm. who, who may be in charge of, you know, a multi-billion dollar company, thousands of employees, when you're one-on-one with them, do you find that sometimes like they, you know, they have blind spots to their own self-care and um you know looking after themselves i suppose that's why they're reaching out for help from from you in the first place it's an it's an excellent question justin one of the most powerful insights i've had through my experiences as a coach and frankly as a coaching myself so i've been able to see the transformative impact of uh this by having two coaches this year who have challenged me in ways I couldn't imagine. <laughs> um, mm. I, I've noticed that a lot of CEOs, for example, will come to the table wanting to become a better leader for their people, wanting to step up in their leadership, or perhaps they're on the tra- they're in transition um, into an executive role, having not been in that kind of role before. Um, and what happens as we work together is, as we are discovering themselves, you know, discovering the person, um, becoming more reflective and self-aware, thinking about their strengths, where they want to um, have areas of focus for us to work on in our coaching relationship, we often go to the air- aspects and areas of their life that they would probably originally have siloed off as not being relevant, such as health or personal relationships or where they're living. Um, or their personal growth, or even their relationship with money. So many different aspects that actually are part of the whole person. Um, And so the the approach I take with my coaching is very much inspired by the coactive method, which is what I've been trained in through the Coactive Training Institute here in California. This idea that, um, you know, what we do and how we be need to be in alignment and so if we we are focused just on segmenting human beings into their professional role we actually end up losing a lot and so much of how we show up in one aspect of our life or area of our life is actually so related um you know unsurprisingly to other areas and so the blind spots that you refer to or you know other language for it the inner critics or the saboteurs the ways we sabotage or sell ourselves short certainly come up and whilst it might be kind of illuminated through a conversation around work we often find that it's showing up in the way that they practice self-care or in their personal relationships and that part of the work for me is the most rewarding when um, the quality of life of the individual that I'm um, working with is improved as a whole and not just their business bottom line 
Um, mm. And that has ripple effects. I think when you're working with people in positions of leadership, it's so powerful because it has ripple effects down to every single person in the organization, who they manage, how they espouse um, leadership in, in for their peers. And it, it, it's part of the, the process is getting them to believe it for themselves so they can give that gift to others. Oh, okay. Well, what, what are your observations then on, say, dealing with leaders in the United States as opposed to in Australia? Because I can imagine... Uh, while there would be similarities, there would be a lot of differences. For for example, in Australia, you know, if someone sort of is seen to be over the top and brash and, you know, sh- shooting from the hip, you know, instantly they get criticised uh, with the tall poppy syndrome. Yes. So excellent observation. And one that I've certainly realised um, myself in my experiences, I think, Let me answer the question in the reverse, which is the one thing that remains constant, regardless of geography, is that I think as human beings, regardless of our position, whether you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 or someone that's unemployed and wanting to get back into work, we deeply crave fulfillment in our lives and to be seen, to be heard, to be living a life of purpose to be living a life that's in alignment with our values. Now, what are each of our individual values? You know, that depends person to person and values are not a moral judgment. Some of us might value honesty and courage. Others value security and peace or patience. And so part of the work is understanding what's important for the person sitting in front of me. What's their vision for their life? What are their values? And then what, where are the gaps in how they're showing up as a partner, as a father, a mother, uh, an employer, um, you know, a CEO, whatever roles or hats they wear, and trying to allow them to, to have the tools and confidence and courage to do that in a way that makes themselves um, feel fulfilled and proud of how they're living their lives. Now, the differences in terms of how people show up and if I can say people's blind spots or critics, I think the biggest difference is really around the, the tall poppy syndrome. Um, one of the, the real realizations I've had is that it, it runs really deep, doesn't it? And I think this idea of um, having a vision for your life or having a dream and not being able to fully live it because we're in fear that others will cut us down does is a real injustice in many ways. And I think the cost of that is that we lose the ability to share our story, to, to make connections with others that could help us or to help others in achieving their dreams. Um, and actually, when we don't share our successes, our ambitions, you know, the, the things that we're doing, we lose the ability to collaborate and to have actually collective success and to grow the pie. Um, and so that's one of the the pieces that I work with with a lot of my coaches which is how are we getting in our own way and how are we holding ourselves back and what does it you know if it is that we want to share our story with the world how do you do it in a way that's authentic to you that feels right for you um, divorce of how it might be received and starting internal and then going external because if we mm. start external we can we, we suddenly take everything off the table um, and, and this, you know, I don't want to, again, generalize because in the US, it's not that everyone is okay with putting themselves out there. There's just a different cultural 
uh, norm, it's okay right? To do or, that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little it's a little different. It is, and and I and I think well, I was certainly shocked when I first arrived in the U.S. and I, you know, was around my peers and everyone was just getting out there and everyone had like a quote unquote story about their life. And I remember someone's like, what's your story? And I had no idea. How to I have like, no story. What, 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 what do you mean by what's my story? So, um, you know, part of it is tactical crafting a story. It becomes relevant. For example, if you're applying to graduate schools in the U S or if you're right. okay. in, yeah. in the media here, but it's you know, different. It's, different. It's, different. it's absolutely different. So we haven't we haven't spoken about Harvard. I'm really interested to find out what your experience was like there. You're on the scholarship. Um, give us give us a flavor of what it's like living and studying at probably well one of, if not the most um, respected universities on the planet. So it might sound like a bit of a cliche, but the two years that I spent at the Kennedy School were honestly the best two years of my life. Um, one of my mentors, Murdad Bagai, who's actually my employer at High Resolve for the last couple of years, he was also at the Kennedy School a good 20, 30 years ago. And I remember before I went off to Kennedy School, I'd won the Monash Scholarship. And he said to me, you know, cherish these next two years because they go so fast. And the people you meet have the potential to become some of the most important people in your life. But also cherish them because they might be the best two years of your adult life. And he still describes his as, you know, the best two years of his life. And um, when I look back, I can say that that was so formative in so many ways. But the thing that's really humbling about my time at the Kennedy School is that I don't think there's ever been another kind of place in my life where I've been so surrounded by diversity of ideas of uh, backgrounds, of people, ethnicities, languages, ways of wanting to show up in the world. And um, it's a bit of a funnel, the Kennedy School, in that if you look at the top of the funnel, people come from all kinds of backgrounds. I had someone in my class who'd started a soccer nonprofit in Cambodia to someone who'd worked for the president of Venezuela to someone who'd worked in investment banking. Um, you know, a lawyer, all kind of coming and meeting in this kind of central point and then going off the bottom of the funnel in very different directions. And the thing that was really special was this emphasis on public service. And what brought me to the Kennedy School, as opposed to some of the other public policy schools, is I loved their definition of leadership and public leadership in the broader sense. So there wasn't this focus on us having to go into public service or become a bureaucrat or run and you know for president or become prime minister it was this idea that wherever you are whether it's in the private sector whether it's in startup land in media in nonprofits in um, the public sector you can practice leadership and that leadership is actually a verb not a noun um, it was also super formative for me because leaving the law and having the courage and backing of the Monash Foundation to go off and study uh, impact investing, technology policy, and social entrepreneurship, really what took me to the Kennedy School was really life-changing for my career in that I was able to pivot into a world I was so fascinated by, but just didn't know how to break into or navigate um, as a you know young 
corporate lawyer in Sydney. And so it really broadened my horizons. But most importantly, the thing that still sticks with me from the Kennedy School um, is the personal growth and change that I experienced. It really, a lot of the, the, the courses uh, challenge my assumptions around who I am, um, have encouraged me to take a more uh, experience kind of experimental and experiential approach to life and my career and the friends and colleagues that I met have become friends for life and uh, you know they they talk about your 3 a.m friends who are those people in the world that you can call at 3 a.m if something is going wrong yeah exactly you hope so but um you know even if it's <laughs> even if it's because you're in trouble um I I certainly can say I, I definitely expected to meet intelligent driven people but I also met some of my best friends in the world and that's a real gift that I you know a gift that keeps on giving and is is something that makes the Kennedy School experience more than just um, the accumulation of a degree. Fantastic. May we could talk for hours but time is against us. Um, (laughs) I uh, we, we will leave it there but that has been an absolutely fantastic interview and I thank you so much uh, for your time from uh, from San Francisco today, and we wish you all the very best in the years ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Justin. Such a pleasure to be on the podcast, and super grateful to you and the John Monash Foundation for all that you do.